Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dear listener, if I may be so bold, ack. For the last six episodes on this podcast, we've been taking a look at how Kathy Comics and Kathy Geiswhite's work at large comments on the issues of its day in a far more insightful and occasionally infuriating way than most have ever given it credit for. On my end, I've been waging war with my Kathy sleep paralysis demon... Hi! Who at this point I've basically embraced as a part of my life. I'm Haley Joel. She's dead Bruce. We're freaking Tony Collette out, but other than that, things are fine. Every day I'm growing stronger. I would die for you. I would kill for you, and I would die for you. But that is not what the penultimate episode of this show is about. What it is about is the legacy made by risk takers in comics, people who made autobiographical comics specifically. Many of these artists, as we've discussed in past episodes, got a lot of pushback for speaking on their own experiences in their day. 
But what we haven't gotten as much of a chance to do is track how work like Kathy Geisweitz and other pioneers who we've talked about, your Aaron Magruders of the Boondocks, your Jackie Ormses, your Allison Bechdels, and on and on, we haven't yet taken a look at how those legacies have influenced artists who are working in autobiographical comics now. So today, we're going to talk to 12 artists. That's also the name of the episode. Very clever. And all 12 of these artists are right now making some of the funniest, sometimes saddest, sometimes most bizarre, sometimes most engaging and interactive work out there. Some of them are fans of Kathy comics. Some of them aren't. Some of them have never read a single strip of the comic. Some of the 12 artists work in zines. Some work in web comics. Some address their identity and their bodies and their lives, while some talk about movies and politics that they like. A few things carry through here. All of their work is distinct. All of their work is personal. Their careers, to some extent, owe to the pioneers in comics that we've been looking at throughout this series. And I really like them, and I'd like for you to know more about them. I could draw a comic. Oh yeah? Let me see it. Oh my god, wow. This is violent. Kathy, is that Dogbert? I can't say what it is, but I legally have to say that whatever is happening to him, it's in Minecraft. Yeah, that'll hold up in court 100%. Start a Patreon, baby. Let's get this thing going. And without further ado, please enjoy 12 Artists. She burst into the world in 1976. She's at work, she's out on dates, and she don't like politics. From Mama and Irvin to her feminist friends. She's fighting all the stanzas with some chocolate in hand. Kathy, she's fighting back. Too stressed for success, let's cut her some slack. Oh, Kathy, my Kathy, fighting Kathy. She's got a lot going on. Be honest with yourself, when was the last time you picked up the Sunday Funnies? Exactly. Today we're going to be exploring the journey that influential comic strips took from the heyday of the funny pages in the 80s and 90s to mediums like the zine, where artist number one of our 12 artists began working in. But before we get to them, what am a zine? Zines tend to be, although there are no hard and fast rules and that's part of what makes it fun, but they tend to be self-published or from independent small publishers. They tend to be relatively short, small circulation, sometimes hyper-local, and affordable if not completely free. They can be about anything. They can be researched or they could just be a collection of scribbles. They can be by one person. They can be by a collection of people. They could be political. They could be about a very specific pop culture property. And in fact, a lot of pre-internet fan culture was built around zines, whether your passion was like Star Trek or Wu-Tang Clan or Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Those are the first three things I thought of that people are fans of. Zines can be very easy to find and unfind. It's a very of the moment kind of media. And they also lent themselves to building real life communities of artists around them. 
Personally, I was lucky enough to make some of my first friends in Los Angeles with this amazing zine press called Devastator Press. Shout out Amanda and Jeffrey, RIP Devastator, and met some of the first empathetic and cool people that I'd ever met in the city through making zines. And if you haven't had the pleasure of reading a zine made by someone you know or someone you don't know, I cannot recommend it enough. Zine culture transcends generation because there's something so human about them. They're tactile, they're brief, they're passed from person to person, and they tend to get really personal. And it's in that area of the medium where we're going to be hanging out today. In the US and the UK, zines were most popular among Gen Xers. After boomers, before millennials, born in the late 60s and 70s, Winona Ryder is like a big deal for them. And for some reason, they take like easily the worst selfies of any generation. This is my favorite joke of all time from my favorite comedian of all time, Chris Fleming. To my Gen Xers, with love, why the up angle with the selfies? Even boomers got like the hold the camera above your head MySpace angle going, which is it's not great, but it's at least sort of flattering. But when Gen X takes a selfie, it's like that the camera is in a bucket that's between that's on the on the ground. Why did they do this? Like no one wants to be at your funeral in the future looking at a picture of you that's angled up your nose like it was taken by a stray cat that was walking past you. And I will concede that millennials take very embarrassing selfies as well. Too much going on, too posed, too staged. The philosophy is like, I need to fit my entire shitty personality into the space of one square. We should just go extinct. Anyways, zines. Zines were most popular when Gen Xers were coming of age, but their existence dates back to the 1930s. Sci-fi fans led the charge originally. The Science Correspondence Club in Chicago started a zine called The Comet in the 1930s, followed by other titles like Fantasy Commentator. These made way for a wave of Star Trek zines in the 60s, most notably a title called Spockanalia, incredible name. These fanzines gained the attention and support of the stars of the show, and a fan letter writing campaign organized via zines literally saved Star Trek from cancellation in the late 60s. Zine culture expanded even more in the 70s and 80s, primarily because the technology that was needed to make them, that is, decent and affordable copy machines, became more widely available. In an earlier episode of this series, we talked about the underground comic scenes, where artists like Trina Robbins, Alison Bechdel, Aileen Kaminsky-Crum, and many others copied and distributed their own comics about sex, their bodies, their politics. Many of these comics were self-distributed, and while their work survives and continues to be influential now, most scenes are more of a flash in the pan, not meant to last forever and rarely going past a couple of printings. In the 80s, the punk scene embraced zines. The music of once obscure bands like Blue Oyster Cult, Joy Division, and the Ramones were recommended, discussed, and disseminated through zines. Popular titles included punk, Slash, and my personal favorite, Sniff and Glue. So punk came and went, and that wave of zines shut down, only to be revitalized again with the Riot Girl movement of the 1990s. We've discussed Riot Girl music in past episodes, as it was a really important musical element of the third wave of American feminism, though it remained pretty firmly white. 
And what was interesting about Riot Girl zines is that they weren't just made by fans, they were made by the actual bands as well. And not just to promote their music, but to promote their political platform. Here's a section from an early Riot Girl zine by Kathleen Hanna, the front woman of Bikini Kill. Complain, complain, complain. At least you don't have it as bad as A, women used to, B, people of color, C, women in other countries. And it's out of this scene that a lot of writers, artists, and publications that are still influential today originally came out of. Miranda July came out of zines. Bitch Magazine came out of zines. Bust Magazine came out of zines. And many of the artists I spoke with for this episode came out of the zine culture of the 1990s and early 2000s, using the medium to explore their own identities and build communities through cartooning. So this first group of artists began their careers by making tactile zines and then went on to migrate their work to either full-blown books or the internet. Artist number one. This first person is an icon of the semi-autobiographical genre and an author and illustrator of one of my childhood favorites, Marissa Moss. Marissa is an artist of the boomer generation who first broke through to the mainstream with the Amelia's Notebook series that ran from the 1990s all the way through the 2010s. I loved these books growing up. They were advertised in the American Girl catalog, and so girls who couldn't afford an American Girl doll because they're too expensive would get an Amelia Rag doll with an Amelia book. Marissa Moss's work was almost certainly the first graphic novel I had ever read. Her books follow Amelia, who at the beginning of the series is a nine-year-old moving to a new town with her family and journaling about it in a composition notebook. Amelia's notebook is that notebook. It is a literal composition notebook with the blue lines and handwriting, and kids have to turn the book to the side to see Amelia's doodles and side comments. There's drawings, there's crossouts, there's things paper clipped to the pages. It was this really cool tactile experience that threw you into the world of this character. If you know a nine-year-old, I recommend it. It holds up. But for our purposes, it's a zine made by a fictional character that introduced that format to kids. Marissa Moss's career is most popularly defined by the Amelia books, but she's continued to challenge and expand on the format as her career continues. Her more recent work is even more personal and has had a huge impact on people about the process of caretaking and grief. She published the graphic memoir, Last Things, in 2017 about her husband's ALS diagnosis, the stress of suddenly becoming a full-time caretaker, the adjustment her family went through, and the loss of her partner less than seven months from his diagnosis. It also covers the aftermath and is an absolutely heart-wrenching and important story that is so beautifully told by Moss's signature art style. We spoke about it a little bit in our interview. Here it is. But it's a pure graphic novel, so there's not a big chunk of text of Amelia. Um, it's called Last Days. And um, that book connected me. It's a book about um, my husband's diagnosis with ALS and death. So it's a so dealing with someone who has ALS, neurotrypophilosis, or Lugaris disease, a horrific disease. So I wrote, this really was cathartic, and also understanding, so I wrote this graphic novel to understand what happened to us as a family and how do we survive this. 
and um, and it connected me with this whole community that I didn't even know existed called Graphic Medicine. It's amazing. It's graphic novelists who have this kind of whole community supporting each other, using graphic novels to tell tough stories. Because well, I, I've actually tried to write this story about my husband for years as a straightforward memoir, but it was too heavy and too depressing. Publishers said, you know, give it a happy ending. Well, for, you know, spoiler alert, he dies. I can't give it a happy ending. Right, yeah. That made it more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I added humor where I could because that's how I deal with difficulties in life. Um, you have to have, as I did when I was a kid, I had to use humor to see the absurdity. Yeah. Because when you have to, you know, I was driving Harvey back from a doctor's appointment. He was on a ventilator at that point. Mm-hmm. And the ventilator battery died. And I realized, oh my God, I have to, I have to park him somewhere because he's not going to have oxygen. I'm driving into a gas station to hook him up to the side of the gas station. You know, you're hooking up a person to a gas station and the attendant is looking at me like, what are you doing? And, you just have to have a sense of humor about it, because otherwise, you know, you, you just tear your hair. Yeah. It's absolutely ludicrous, because doctors tend to treat body parts, and graphic novels show them, the graphic medicine novels show them, there are people behind these symptoms and these problems, and you need to realize you're, you're dealing with whole families. If you haven't read Last Things and know someone who might benefit from it, I'll be linking it below. These days, Marissa has also been working on a series about women who have gone unsung or misunderstood by history. Think famous rower Ida Lewis. Think Confederate spy Sarah Emma Edmonds. Think pioneering pilot Harriet Quimby. She is amazing, and I think a really cool example of an artist of the boomer persuasion who introduced confessional zine-style art to kids and found huge mainstream publishing success in the process. Artist number two. Our next artist began in the tactile world of zines during the 2000s, only to cross over into autobiographical work in other formats. I'm talking about Malika Garib, who isn't just a graphic novelist, she's also an accomplished journalist, currently with NPR as a health and development correspondent. She's literally who I wanted to be when I was growing up. And it was her who both drew inspiration from and recommended that I reach out to Marissa Moss. Ah. Her debut graphic novel, I Was Their American Dream, was released in 2019 and follows Malika's journey growing up as a first-generation Filipina-Egyptian-American. The book is written in her handwriting in a very confessional funny style, with all of the margin notes, doodles, and even pull-out activities that touch on growing up between cultures, including the American friends and schooling system she grew up with. It explores her falling in love and figuring herself out as a young person, and she looks back on her time in the zine community very, very fondly. Here's some of our interview. My name is Malika Garib, and I am a cartoonist, journalist, and a writer. I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Your work is so autobiographical. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your background and how you first got into, um, into drawing. So I actually come from the zine community. Um, I've been making zines and mini magazines since I was 14. Mm -hmm. So uh, in in high school, I had one all about music. Um, And then, you know, when I got to the real world, I I did a zine about food. Um, And then just sort of branched off doing zines um, about my own personal life. This is a genre in zines called purzines. I think um, in 
in my 20s, I started to, to really think about what, um, why I was so drawn to zines. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the economy of what you're trying to express. So, you know, in a zine, it's like in very few pages. In comics, it's very few panels. Mm-hmm. And you have to use visuals and text to sort of express the maximum emotion in a very, very small space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like writing a haiku. There's something really challenging about, about that format, all those constraints. I like comics were almost like, like a cousin or a sister to making a zine, having somebody enter your world through these pages. Mm-hmm. So I really, really like to push the boundaries on, on um, scale and economy of line and just make things like that are like, like my, my illustration style is very light and airy. I like to use like the least amount of lines. I think once I cracked that nut, I was like, yeah, I think I could draw any, like start drawing about my life or, you know, adapt essays that I've written um, into comic form because it just is so much more um, dynamic and more yeah. expressive when I, when I do it that way. I started doing like very personal comics, uh, at, like it's actually pretty new. In 2016, okay. after, um, after I started hearing all this like anti-immigrant rhetoric in the in the news, I actually were, was drawing co- comics, like spot comics, like almost every day as a reaction to what I was hearing. And I wanted to correct false narratives that I thought were based on stereotypes. While Malika was working for NPR in a journalistic capacity, she realized that her passion for personal illustration and current events actually had some pretty significant overlap, and that her art could be used to help others tell their story in an engaging and accessible way. I definitely hadn't done comics for NPR um, until very recently, like in the past two years since my book was published. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that... You know, there, there's a lot of, there's rigorous standards, like you, you have to apply the rigorous standards of journalism to comics um, when you're doing comics journalism. So, for example, I interviewed somebody who was in a refugee camp, who was working in a refugee camp in Bangladesh mm-hmm. with Rohingya refugees. And I had him send me like 40 pic- pictures of like, where do you work? Where does, what, does, how, what does your house look like? What does your wife look like? What does your kid look like? And I use all of these to make uh, the story of him. Malika Garib is currently working on her second graphic novel about her own life, this time honing in on the summers that she would spend in Egypt with her dad. It's called It Won't Always Be This Way, and it comes out in 2022. You know, I think personal comics are kind of like a adjacent to keeping a diary. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of an illustrated form. I feel like when I draw, it's like I'm writing in a diary and trying to tease out how I'm, how I'm actually feeling it at any given moment. Artist number three. Someone I'm a huge fan of who makes me laugh all the time. That's really this entire episode, Jamie being a fan. But the artist in question is Joey Allison Sayers, whose story of migrating from the zine scene in Oakland to a thriving career in webcomics really illustrates the differences between the mediums and platforms as zines gave way to webcomics as the prevalent form of independent comic distribution during the early to mid-2000s. Today, she lives in Oakland with her wife and two kids, but grew her love of comics, reading the newspaper, and working on early zines with her dad, then going on to start making her own during her teen years. Here's a bit of our interview. 
I'm Joey Allison Sayers, and I'm a cartoonist uh, living in Oakland, California. Music was kind of like my big love for for a lot of that that era, like the my adolescence. Yeah. Um, and I really thought that's where I was going to take my uh, creativity um, and become a concert clarinetist. But um, the, <laughs> that was my big dream. Twist. Yeah, that's so playing cool. a symphony. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, so. But I, for a variety of reasons, that kind of that fell by the wayside. But um, what always stayed with me was drawing and creating visual art. So, um, and then when I was in my twenties, I got excited to start really sort of trying to do comics again. I, I basically, um, <laughs> I, I, I like to say I independently invented the medium of mini comics um, <laughs> um, because I didn't know what they were. I didn't really know what zines were. But I, I had this idea of like creating a photocopied bound collection of some drawings that I had done. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. I invented this new thing. <laughs> um, and so I took it to the local comic store and they're like, that's great. We have tons of these. And like, here's some other people that make them that work here at the store and you should get to know them. And so that kind of got me on my path to um doing comics more seriously. Once in her 20s, Joey dove into the zine community in Oakland in earnest, developing her own voice and beginning to write and illustrate more personal material. Um, I had been living here for, um, I don't know, probably by that point, about five or six years. And um, I got hooked up with um, Comic Relief, which was a really big comic book store here um, in Berkeley um, and is just like a, a local hub or was, I mean, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but I, I just met um, all kinds of great cartoonists um, who kind of, that was our, our sort of common thread. And so we, we started drawing comics together and I co-created a, um, like a get together, a comics group where we'd meet up um, once a week and draw comics um, at a local bar and we would just like, you know, share ideas and crack jokes. And um, it was just a really great creative hotbed. I was in very intentionally avoiding any sort of autobiographical work at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I was avoiding basically any form of introspection at that time in my life. I was just deeply unhappy um, and and not fully self-actualized. And I didn't want to be fully self-actualized. And so... Um, so in, in, a, in a sort of almost, uh, stereotypical way, I, I turned to humor, um, which had always been my great, the great deflector, um, <laughs> of, of sincerity. And so, yeah, I was like, I, I just wanted to make people laugh and maybe then they wouldn't think about me and who I was. So, and that all boils down to the fact that I'm, I'm trans. And, uh, at that, at that point in my twenties, I wasn't, I wasn't out um, and I hadn't transitioned in any way. So, but it was, it was when I started to transition, um, I realized that I, I didn't have to be afraid of myself any longer. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have to be afraid of people seeing who I was. Looking more deeply at myself, I realized that I, I wanted to talk about it and I wanted to share um, the things that I had gone through, mostly because, you know, at the time when, when I transitioned, which was in the, you know, mid aughts, um, mm -hmm. there, 
there wasn't as much there wasn't as much information out there. There wasn't as much dialogue going out about the trans experience. I mean, we're really lucky now. I mean, I know there's still a long way to go, but I want I kind of wanted to talk about the good things. Um, and at least for me, my life just improved immeasurably. Joey's work online is extremely versatile. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's informational, sometimes it's political, and a lot of the time it's just funny as fuck. I'll be linking to her work in the description. But part of what I find so interesting about artists that made the leap from tactile to digital medium is how the way that they received feedback changed. For the most part, in her early career, Joey would never learn what a reader of her zines thought unless she knew them personally. But the internet is the internet. It was it was almost almost exclusively positive. Um, yeah. And I, I heard from a lot of um, people earlier in their transition who um, who did see it for what I hoped it would be, which was just kind of like a, a positive beacon um, for those people who were intending to go on that journey um, yeah. or who were heading out on that journey and just to see that it wasn't all darkness and, um, and horribleness. And I also um, talked to a lot of cisgender people who for who it, it taught them a lot about what it was like to be trans and what the experience was like and um and 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 just to understand the the that side of things um and i mean i think a, a key thing was at that time um most of it wasn't online i i mean i put little bits here and there but but online was just a different place so almost everybody who who encountered that comic um either ordered it directly from me or bought it from me at a um like a comic show i, I would like to see the shift the shifts that are currently happening, I'd like to see them continue in that uh, particularly I'd like to see, um, you know, more and more diverse voices out there. Um, and I'd like to see the, I feel like there's been a greater shift towards empathy. Um, I, you know, I want to say society wide, and I know that's maybe a little bit of a product of me living, um, where I do. Um, but I, you know, I, I do think like the, like specifically in in humor and humor comics, I feel like we've moved away um, a lot. A lot of people have moved away from that sort of the uh, punching down, mm -hmm. um, which uh, you know used to be really popular. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I just I I want to see. I, I'd like to see humor uh, continue to evolve and be a place that uh, actually is filled more with love. Um, not to sound cheesy, but. Joey Allison Sayre's career continues to thrive in the webcomic space with ongoing series for The Nib and for the Universal Press Syndicate's website, where many webcomic artists have found their home. And speaking of webcomics, we need to take a quick look at that medium's history as well. Because for many of the 12 artists that I spoke with, it's where they first became inspired by the independent comic scene and where they distributed their early work. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, 
playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The beginning of webcomics is pretty intuitive. It's the beginning of the internet. During the mid-1980s into the early 90s, there were a couple of webcomics. There was a Wizard of Oz parody called Witches and Stitches, and one of the first regularly updated comics was called Where the Buffalo Roam in 1991 by Hans Bjordahl. But during this era, webcomics were way outnumbered by zines. For reference, about 40,000 zines were in circulation during the early 90s. But as the 90s went on, a lot of college newspapers and music websites started to bring their comics online. The Boondocks by Aaron Magruder would later make the leap to the syndicated funny pages and even to TV, but it started on a music website called hitlist.com. Webcomics began to surge in the late 90s as the internet surged into American homes. According to a Pew Research paper from 1995, the largest uptick in American home computer ownership was between 94 and 95, with many lower-income American families not getting them until the late 90s into the 2000s when more affordable models became available. Gateway gang, baby! Some of the strips popular during this time were Net Boy by Stafford Hewler and Argon Zark by Charlie Parker. These artists began to experiment with the form of webcomics using shapes and dimensions that were unique to the internet and couldn't be printed in the parameters of the ordinary funny page. And as much as I hate to hand it to Dilbert. It was, in fact, this future right-wing Donald Trump-addicted antagonist Scott Adams to be the first funny page artist to find that their strip did better in print when it was also made available online. By the end of the 90s, there were hundreds of independent webcomics available, with the only barrier, and not an insignificant one, being reliable access to the internet. And once the medium was firmly established, webcomics migrated from social media platform to social media platform pretty easily. There was a webcomic culture on LiveJournal, on Tumblr, on Blogger, via email newsletters, on YouTube, on their own websites, and more often than not now, on Instagram. Many of these strips became the stuff of legend and addressed intimately personal subjects. One that always stands out to me was Ali Brosh's Hyperbole and a Half, whose commentary on depression and mental health remains a classic to this day. Nowadays, there are artists who started in webcomics who then worked backwards to start making tactile zines. I did this myself as well after starting to publish work online, and I think it's a pretty interesting switch that is unique to internet natives. For me, it came down to a few things. First, publishing and selling zines was one of the only ways to monetize your work. 
And then there's the fact that the tactile nature of it was really novel and exciting. And the self-publishing process, which for me was staying late at my job at Playboy and using their printer and also their mailing supplies and also their stamps and also their mailbox, felt cool. And then there was the appeal of the different feedback model. The idea that the work that I made wouldn't invite instant commentary like I was used to on the internet was something I was really eager to experience. I mean, someone having to sit with your work instead of spewing whatever collection of words came to their head. Ugh! Our next artist took this same route. Beginning with artist number four, Sophia Zarders, whose work ranges from the hyper-political, they've done some really cool work for the Long Beach DSA, Solidarity Baby, to pop culture commentary with zines about problematic pop stars and spotlighting women and trans filmmakers, to hyper-personal webcomics with their work like Our Lady of Cacophony and Jesus Freak which both examine and comment on her time in Catholic school. They are a versatile and curious artist, and I was so excited to talk with them about growing up on the isolated internet, then finding community through zines. What were you drawn to in terms of subject matter, and how did that kind of evolve? Um, well, at first, I did a lot of, um, they're almost like diary comics, and I would just kind of make them uh, whenever I was just going through a hard time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back on them, they're kind of like cringy, I guess. Um, I think now I'm a lot more uh, like I keep my my cards close <laughs> when it comes to those things. Um, and so yeah, like I would directly draw from my experiences. And whereas now I think um, I think I'm better at writing and better at storytelling where I can create characters that like experience similar things, but um, I'm more interested in like telling those stories. Yeah. When I first started making those really personal ones, it mm-hmm. um, it coincided with like, like right before I started going to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of started on Tumblr. The first couple of zine fests that I did, I feel like they were pretty white or they were, like, this sounds so preposterous, but like big names mm-hmm. <laughs> in the zine community yeah. um, or the in the comics world. And I think in the last couple of years, people have been more aware of the different people that are tabling it's funny like right after I graduated high school like the summer between high school and college Mm -hmm. I um started writing the script for a comic uh that ended up becoming Jesus Freak Mm -hmm. um which is like on hiatus right now but um that was really influenced by my high school experience even though it's about like kids who uh use a Ouija board and a ghost haunts them for the rest of the comic Mm -hmm. um but it like it channeled a lot of my um frustration Mm -hmm. (laughs) with Catholic school and uh frustration with just like being a teenager definitely with Comic Arts LA I'd say that it's there's more smaller creators Mm. that are um, given the opportunity to like show their stuff. 
Sophia's work absolutely rocks. I've learned so much from it. I have laughed a ton from it. Buy up their zines now because they're going to be worth a lot someday. Webcomics have also provided a platform for established artists who work in animation to get their individual stories and styles out. That's the case for artist number five. The wildly talented Katie Rice. Katie's artistic influence and sense of humor can be felt all over influential millennial cartoons, specifically underappreciated jewels about women and girls. Shout out to her past work on shows like The Mighty Bee. Shout out to DC Superhero Girls. Shout out to My Life as a Teenage Robot. While working on larger productions like that, Katie also built a huge fan base with her personal work, which lived online and ranged from commentary on childhood like Camp We Don't Wantcha to deeply personal stuff that she made while processing her own experiences. Here's some of our interview. I actually did start a very short-lived autobiocomic a few years ago Mm -hmm. that was specifically like autobiocomics, and I didn't do very many of them because I got very vulnerable and I'm not especially comfortable being publicly vulnerable. Um, But like the first uh, comic I committed to was back in 2008 Mm -hmm. and it was not autobiographical at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But then as it was going on, people would sometimes comment and be like, oh, is this about you? And I'd be like, no, what are you talking about? This character is nothing like me. And then they'd be like, oh, well, it's this, 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 and this. And I'm like, oh, Mm, okay. <laughs> like, um, so I think, I think I have a weird habit and it's so funny. My husband always sees it before, before I do too, but like, I do have a tendency to put personal things in my work without realizing it. And then Ooh, okay. later on, cause it's like, you know, my first comic is, is a comic called Skatey and the, the main character is, is loud and demanding and she's gross and she's strong and nobody can defeat her. She's not anything like me. <laughs> um, but she's in this like, she's in this like war with her like God, like she has a God that she's trying to do quests for and he's a shithead and he sucks, (laughs) but she just wants his approval. And I had a, I had that exact sort of um, relationship with my mentor growing up. I had this Mm. shitty, horrible mentor Mm. that I would have like done anything for. And I was always treated like complete shit. And people started making that connection like way before I did. At one point in her career, Katie felt very burned out in animation and went to the woods to make something with her husband, fellow artist Adam Wallander. That something became Camp We Don't Wantcha, a truly classic webcomic that oscillates between full-on cartoon humor and quiet, empathetic storylines about childhood. She describes finding a lot of peace and creativity working with someone who she loves and trusts. Here's some of our talk about that. He was very good at, at helping me from skewing too dark, bringing it back to the light or putting a, a happy a happy spin on something that I was going, you know, a little, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, you need that person, especially when it's like someone that you, I don't know, innately trust. And that's, that's, a, that's yeah. such a cool, um, yeah, such a cool quality. Yeah, actually, um, I don't know if this is going off topic too much, but like, um, uh, so I'm one of those people like many who, uh, always dealt with, um, kind of like sad, uh, or upsetting stuff with humor my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've kind of, I had kind of just grown up in the same environment. I worked in the same environment. And so, uh, I always got the right reaction that I was looking for when I would tell funny stories about my own, like kind of, um, 
you know, some unpleasant stuff that had happened uh, in my work history or whatever you want to call it. And then Mm -hmm. uh, when I met my husband, Adam, and I told him all my funny stories, Mm -hmm. uh, he was like, those aren't funny. Those are horrible. Like, why are you telling that? Like, it's a joke. And then I was like, like, oh my God, no, you're right. And so uh, I have my husband to thank for me kind of like taking the first step into like, okay, let's deal with some of this stuff. And that's like, let's be an adult now and deal with some of these things. Katie's also been a huge advocate for marginalized voices in animation, a field which to this day is a very, very white male field. She spoke on how isolating that could be and the stereotypes attributed to women in that space. And it really reminded me of how Kathy Geisweit spoke about her early years in the male-dominated newspaper comic space. I just don't know where they were. Like, I don't know where all the women were uh, starting out. And there's also just the stereotypes, like I kind of mentioned, which were, you know, women uh, were better suited in um, assistant roles, uh, uh, roles that, were, you know, color, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is a super important job. Um, but like, I think it, people see it as like, oh, it's, it's adding something beautiful to our cartoon. It's, um, you know, it's and like, like personally, I think, I think color can be very important to story um, and it should get that credit, but I don't know that everybody always sees it that way. It's more like, yeah. Um, and yeah, the stories, the stories, uh, the story people were always, were always guys. And I don't, I don't know what changed it. Something, something along the way changed it. And uh, I got to be part of it, which I feel grateful for. Katie Rice's work across mediums is so wonderful. She is a huge role model of mine and you will love her work too. Artist number six. One of my favorite genres of webcomic artists is a person who is making whatever the fuck they want because they already have a job in a life and so what they're bringing to the internet is truly just what they want to say. That is where artist number six, Homyara Mabub, comes in. And she's a very raw kind of funny that just comes through so clearly in her webcomic work, which is influenced by her love of the early confessional webcomics of the 2000s. Stuff like A Softer World by Joey Como and artist Emily Horn, like Perry Bible Fellowship by Nicholas Gierwich, Perfect Stars by Jordan Piantadosi. Like many artists we've talked with, Homyara is also very versatile, most recently serving as the co-creator of Netflix show Why Are You Like This with Naomi Higgins and Mark Samuel Bonanno. But she developed her comedic voice originally through her autobiographical comics while working as a full-time law student and now lawyer. Some of her strips read like poems, and then there's others that are gross or introspective or kind or whatever she's feeling, which is what makes it so good. Here's a conversation we had about her life in comics. At uni, I think, which it's weird that I had that much confidence because I was in, well, it's always, I'm, I've been, you know, confident outside of my ability my whole life, which I actually think is my greatest strength. I don't give a shit. There's all kinds of idiots doing all kinds of stuff. I could be one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I, I was at uni and I was studying law and, um, I just, I don't know why I did. I just started putting them on my Facebook and, um, most of them at that time were very, um, I don't know, like teen oblique, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, And I remember lots of like men in my classes, I guess they were boys, they were, you know, 18 to 22 or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. All the boys in my classes would be like, what what does that even mean, dude? Just so like, you're like into arts. (laughs) (laughs) 
Are you still uh, working as a lawyer from in the day-to-day sense? I am, yes. Um, weirdly, yeah, it's a bit of a weird situation. Like I um, keep having to run home from work. I like was late to an interview yesterday because I couldn't get out of work on time. Cool. And I remember actually having a whole thing being like, okay, well, if I'm a serious lawyer person, mm. I can't be, you know, fiddling around with these drawings, these like silly doodles. Yeah. Because um, I would always get in trouble in class for doodling before we switched to laptops. Um and so I remember thinking to myself, I had to stop doing it. So I actually stopped for like a year or a bit. So I did. And then I was just, I th- one day I just went, fuck it. Um, so I started again and then I started posting online. Hum has also worked outside of web comics, illustrating for the Australian broadcasting company and The Toast. But her most popular work is posted to her personal page. Again, I cannot recommend Hum's comics enough. And check out Why Are You Like This on Netflix right now. Artist number eight is Sina Grace, who is just as well known for his autobiographical work in graphic novels like Self-Obsessed and Nothing Lasts Forever as he is for his work in big name comic franchises like Iceman, Go-Go Power Rangers, Gem and the Holograms, Jughead, I could keep going. Sina's sense of humor and authorial mark is very consistent no matter what genre he's working in. And he's become a real pioneer in introducing LGBTQIA characters into mainstream comics, even when the powers that be, <coughs> Marvel, <coughs> didn't always adequately support him to make it happen. He's just wonderful and has this really comprehensive knowledge of the comics medium from the funnies to the superheroes to the heart-wrenching personal graphic novels. And it was so much fun picking his brain. Here's our conversation. You always want to do the thing you admire. So of course, when I started, I really wanted to do like high concept superhero books. And I was reading a lot of these comics that were just about like big breasted women who get powers that like make it so their clothes get torn off. And so, but it wasn't until I think I was in college and I read this book blankets by Craig Thompson. Yeah, And that was the, it's dope. And I, and I had read like graphic memoir before, but I think that, and this book Pedro and me by Judd Winnick, who was Judd from real world San Francisco. And he hung out with Pedro Zamora and he did a book about his friendship with Pedro and HIV. And and it was just a really beautiful tribute to this guy's life. And then I started working at a comic book company. I was editing comics for the guy who created. Mm -hmm. And that job also drove me crazy. So this book about another job that drove me crazy was like my like way to like take care of myself is like, I would work till like eight or 9 PM and then go to intelligentsia on sunset and work till like 10.30 or 11 p.m. on this comic book. Finding that he was unhappy just editing comics, Cena began to channel his creative energy into telling more personal stories, eventually getting several of his collections published. I've done a few autobiographical books, like Not My Bag, and then mm-hmm. You've Read Self-Obsessed, mm-hmm. um, which was more of a, that one was more of like a throw anything against the wall and see what sticks book. And and then like once again helped me out of a dark phase but the book that i'm most proud of and and was such an interesting challenge was this book called nothing lasts forever yeah um which was the last auto bio book i've i've done because it sort of was it it like when i started it it was just journal entries i i had gotten sick with this um 
I don't even know what, I mean, it's just a disorder in my esophagus. And I was like yakking up food left and right and losing a ton of weight. And I was like super depressed. And then on top of that, just dealing with like the every three year cycle of being a creative being like, I don't have a story to tell. I don't know what to do. Like nothing sticking like, yeah. And then, you know, also like making the same mistakes with guys over and over again. And, um, and it was just sort of this, but like the tapestry started coming together and, it, and, and everyone was telling me it was the book. Like everyone was like, this is your book. Like these journal entries are your book. Like mm-hmm. all this other crap you're trying to do is not the book. This is the book. So, and then this book, I actually like reveled in its messiness. Like I reveled in like, I, I intentionally made it non sequiturs happen. I made it dirty. Like it's all drawn in pencil with like a very limited color palette. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I, I, at one point I did have to erase, um, a person's name because he didn't really want his name to be in it. And so I like, but even that you could see, like I intentionally left the smudges. So the reader knows that that's not his actual name. Right. Um, there's like a fragility that I, I love about it. And, and it's such a delicate book about a delicate time. Mm-hmm. Um, And I love it. I love it a lot for that. Cena Grace is such a fascinating figure in comics because the themes and tone of his personal work so easily find their way into his work for big name franchises in a way that feels really effortless. Here he is talking about his time working for the Iceman franchise at Marvel. For non-superhero worshippers like myself, Iceman was originally a Stan Lee character from 1963 who's basically like a B-side X-Man. X-Men fans, please do not contact me if I'm wrong about that. But Cena's interpretation of the character is empathetic and nuanced and funny. The thing that like a lot of the legacy X-Men fans were upset about was like, how could Iceman be gay? Like he's gone all these years, like dating chicks and I, you know, I didn't make him gay. I didn't have him come out like that happened before me, but they hired me to like, you know, (laughs) finesse it. Uh And I have dated a number of guys where they just haven't come out until their 20, late twenties, thirties. And this isn't like 1999. I'm talking like 2016, 2018, whenever that like, Right. Like literally, you know, within six months of writing that book, like I dated a guy who had come out at like 31 Mm -hmm. and I just respectfully and like I, I amalgamated all these narratives. But I took these guys truths and I gave it to the character because it was just like, that's the only way I'm going to get through this Mm -hmm. is if is if this hyper science fiction character's journey is rooted in actual things that I can point to haters and be like, you don't have to vibe with it, but like this, like this is for people I know. I highly recommend you check out Cena's work, whether you're a fan of big name comic franchises or like me, if you like deeply personal work, I absolutely love Nothing Lasts Forever. Cena often refers to himself as being self-obsessed in his personal work to the point where that's the name of a whole collection he published. Artist number eight talks about herself in much the same way, and I love her for it. And who is artist number eight? It's Gina Winbrandt. 
Gina and I became friends when I was a huge fan of her work from afar and wouldn't stop tweeting at her about it, and she eventually broke down and became my friend. Her first comic collection is called Someone Please Have Sex With Me. It came out in 2016 and is currently being developed for TV. Like many others we've spoken with, Gina started by posting her comics online when she didn't see her particular brand of horniness represented, then slowly began to build out a full narrative for her book with some of my all-time favorite commentary on bodies, on wanting to fuck, and on peak Justin Bieber. Here's some of our talk. Uh, my name is Gina Winbrandt, and I live in Chicago, and I make comics. What were the earliest comics you were making about? Uh, yeah, I was definitely always interested in, like, celebrities or wanting to do my, I don't know, yeah, find a way to like feel like a celebrity doing self-published comics. Mm-hmm. I feel like putting in pop culture and celebrity stuff is, you know, not, not something that everyone was doing. Gina developed her work online and got involved in zine culture in Chicago, distributing her work at independent bookstores like Quimby's and self-publishing throughout her early career. It didn't take her very long to figure out what it was she wanted to talk about sex, pop culture, and herself. I've always enjoyed talking about sex, you know, in my own personal life. So it just seems natural that uh, I it would spill over into my comics. Mm. Like when I lost my virginity, I was the first one out of my friends and I had to tell everyone and brag. And I'm like very proud that I have sex. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, so, and people need to know. So <laughs> that's why I have to make a comic about it. But um, even before I did comics, I was like, exposing myself on the internet and stuff and like had an online journal you know live journal zanga stuff Mm -hmm. like that so i'm used to like writing just being you know being self-obsessed and like (laughs) writing look this is what happened to me you guys gina's work can be found on two cloud and on her website linked in the description And Someone Please Have Sex With Me is one of the best comic collections ever published. Deal with it. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road 
comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastor runs the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, huh? oh. run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. A 
I've been talking with a lot of artists who work in multiple formats, but there's many popular autobiographical comic artists who work exclusively online. Our next three artists are women whose web comics blew up in the past several years on Instagram as they explored their own lives, interests, and anxieties while building an audience and learning to draw in real time. I think it's so interesting how much this is carried through from Kathy Geiswhite learning to draw her stories day to day in the paper in her early years to artists like artist number nine. Kim, aka The Red Dot, whose work has developed a really strong following just in the last two years. I became familiar with Kim's work online over the pandemic lockdown. Prior to starting the comic, she had been developing her style privately, but in March 2020 began sharing her work every single day on the platform. And as these online stories sometimes go, one of her comics went viral after George Takei shared it, and her semi-autobiographical character Dot and the comic strip overall exploded. The Red Dot generally explores the world through Dot, who is essentially Kim's Kathy character, most often using pop culture reference points from movies and fantasy stories to explore her own life and ideas. In some of my favorite strips, the Dot character often talks to past versions of herself at different ages with the perspective of her life now as a 30-year-old. It's really good. These days, less than two years into becoming a comic artist while continuing to work her day job, the Red Dot has over 400,000 followers and a loyal base of fans on Patreon. I talked to Kim recently about this uniquely online journey. So take me through your webcomics uh, fandom journey. Where Was Cyanide and Happiness kind of your entry point there? And then how did, how did it kind of go from there? They're definitely the entry point. Like I literally had a computer animation class where me and my friends would not do our assignment and just browse through their website and send them to each other. Um, Yeah. So watching them grow and then like Shen and Sarah Anderson and like the Tumblr generation kind of blew up into Reddit. And then you just had influx of all these great little art styles and relatable perspectives that just hit even though if it wasn't exactly something you went through you're like oh I can see that how much of dot is pulled from you um and and how did you build out the character has the character changed since you started drawing her consistently or uh she's definitely changed uh in style as I've gotten better and more used to uh, figure drawing every day because mm-hmm. uh, she was super lanky, really big, bulbous eyes, kind of Tim Burton-y. I didn't want to go for that. It just it happened to be really skinny, lanky, but mm-hmm. um, she started to get more proportioned and then a lot more expressive with the eyes. And when it comes to her character, I would say emotionally pretty dead set on. Mm-hmm. Like... Um, I came out of the closet as a bisexual woman back in 2018. And I started like kind of incorporating those kind of LGBTQ positive comics, not because I'm suddenly a part of this community. It's just, I'm finally okay expressing that part of myself without being inauthentic. I don't want to represent something that I'm not and then do a disservice. 
The red dot strip was always personal and was initially released within the context of the existential stress and fear of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. It was during this time that Kim's husband spent a long, terrifying stretch in the hospital, something that was referenced and addressed head-on in the comic until his, thankfully, recovery and return home. Kim was processing this stress and anxiety in her work in real time, and as she tells it, the community that was built around the comic strip played a large role in getting her through a really difficult time. Uh, it's definitely a like a form of therapy at times. Other days where it feels like work where I'm not I'm not in love with it, but mm-hmm. sometimes just having the the routine of okay, I need to get this done and once I have it out, it will be a catharsis and we can go on with the next day. I don't have to answer to people saying like, "Well, you can't be bi because you're married to a guy." It no, this was about me being okay with me. So I want to talk about it here and there. And then once it felt more comfortable coming out in that expression, I was, be, I was able to be more vocal about it there before having actual conversations with certain family members. Right. Um, so yeah, it definitely, it's a nice slow roll for that. I will be linking to the Red Dot comic in the description. Reading Kim's work is honestly one of my favorite parts of the day. On to artist number 10. My dear friend Anna Salinas, an illustrator, comedian, and TV writer who does, I think, some of the sharpest commentary on depression and body image in the game with her strip Bad Comics by Anna on Instagram, which currently stands at over 50,000 followers. Like the Red Dot and Kathy, Bad Comics follows an avatar modeled after Anna herself, who talks to her personified depression and anxiety, talks frankly about her body, and above all, is very, very funny. I was really fascinated to learn that Bad Comics actually started up when Anna was working a dead-end job, feeling uniquely like shit in a way that only someone who has just moved to Los Angeles can feel like shit. She was honestly the first person I thought to speak to when I was getting this episode together, so I'm very excited to share some of our interview. This is kind of how it happened. I was really, really depressed. I was more depressed than I'd ever been in my life when I was teaching because my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. I had always had anxiety, but just never experienced like full-on depression and was not in therapy didn't like my parents were not about therapy. Like I had no tools to understand what I was going through. Yeah. Um, and so I would draw it and I would draw that I was, I would like, I'm also really bad at talking about my feelings. So I would draw in this little strip, like I'm sad, I'm drunk. Um, and I'm drinking because I'm sad. Mm. And I think the first comic I ever did, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm out of that relationship. Cause it was Like I had a cloud that said sadness, despair, anxiety. And um, uh, someone commented or maybe two people commented and said like, oh, cute. And that gave me the, also my ex-boyfriend comment or message being was like, that's really hurtful. I I can't (laughs) believe you posted that. Yeah. But mostly the reception was good. Mm -hmm. And I kept posting, um, and people kept kind of commenting and following and, and would message me and be like, oh, I'm going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I felt so 
comforted by that, I was able to see the cyclical nature of depression Mm -hmm. in a much more clear way. Um, And I have a friend actually whose therapist told her to make an anxiety um, blanket, which is like, she, she knit, she liked to knit. And her therapist was like, when you're feeling really bad, knit the color red. When it's not so bad, do yellow. Have you heard of this before? No, this is really cool. And when you're feeling good, do green. Mm -hmm. So she had this blanket where like, you could see these stripes of green and yellow and red, Mm -hmm. like in various, various uh, thicknesses, like come and go. And it was supposed to remind you that like this bad feeling will pass. Right. And my comic served as that. I used to draw myself fully clothed um, mm-hmm. with like a skirt, which is weird because I don't even wear skirts ever. <laughs> but I w- drew myself with a skirt and a top. Mm-hmm. And about two years in, around there maybe, yeah, I would occasionally draw myself an underwear topless because that is how I exist in my bedroom. And I spend a lot of time in my bedroom, especially when I'm not feeling well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hate wearing shirts when I'm alone. And there is something so deeply unsexy about my body when it's just me in a room. And some people feel themselves. They take selfies and they're like, oh, I just felt so hot. That is truly never me. Something I especially appreciated was how she's able to control the way that she presents her body in the comic. As she describes it, drawing herself as a cartoon is this desexualization process that liberates her from the way that her body is received and in some ways taken from her while performing live. You know, I was also doing comedy at the time. Mm. And I just feel, especially because I'm a curvy lady, I feel so sexualized when I'm on stage. Like it's this hurdle I have to get over. Like I have a big butt and I just feel like that is just like an elephant in the room or something. And I'm like never funny enough to get over it. Um, And I would always like try to play men and like sketch and improv to kind of desexualize that. Yeah. Um, And with the comic, I can exist outside of all of that. I can exist truly desexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very freeing. Honestliness Forever. Check out Bad Comics by Anna on Instagram, and you can see some of Anna's recent work in TV writing on Flatbush Misdemeanors on Showtime. Artist 11, the wonderful Katie Fischel who works under the handle at sex underscore is underscore weird on Instagram, which currently has almost 70,000 followers. Katie started doing the comic after having conversations with friends about her experiences in horrible, often scary or traumatizing dating situations and formative ways of viewing her own body. She found that a lot of her friends were connecting with it and started the comic. It's completely unflinching, sometimes goes full body horror, and is just visceral. I dare you to look at her work and not pull out a repressed memory. In like a fun way though. And she's since used her growing platform to address issues that she holds close, most frequently in her work on the mistreatment of unhoused people in Los Angeles. Her collaborations with unhoused activist and host of the incredible We the Unhoused podcast, Theo Henderson, drew attention to how the COVID-19 lockdown affected unhoused people far differently than the housed. 
Theo's work is also deeply important and I will be linking to it in the description. Subscribe to his Patreon. I got to speak with Katie Fischel about finding her own voice through Sex is Weird. You know, I think the first thing that I ever did that even somewhat resembled it, because I I wasn't, I drew my entire life. I drew, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid, just, it was such a pastime and it was a comfort and it was just something so fun. And it was sort of, I think my first like, um, uh, feeling of like, oh, this could be my currency. And so there was something that was really satisfying about, um, like putting, having to sit with these experiences in a real way and like spending like hours, you know, making these like little drawings and, and, um, you know, I didn't really intend on putting them online, uh, until like, I kind of got, not like peer pressured into it, but I, I, I had like enough, you know, like boosters from like friends and, yeah. you know, that everybody was just being really supportive and it was, it felt fucking crazy. I mean, you know, it literally is like, it's like if you left your diary on the sidewalk and you watched, you know, a couple hundred people sort of like pick it up and pass it around and have something to say about it. It really made me feel crazy. How does the like instantness of feedback kind of shape what you do? If it does. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I think it definitely like, you know, I, I feel lucky in the sense that I, well, besides a couple of things, I haven't gotten any sort, for the most part, a ton of ne- negative feedback. There are topics that I think are really sensitive that people knee jerk reaction to, you know, some of which I pay mine to most of which I do not, right. uh, you know, I, I think that's sort of the power of like speaking from my personal experience and also, you know, uh, illustrating the personal experiences of other people who anonymous anonymously submit, you know, to my page. It's like, well, regardless, like whatever you think about the situation, it's mine or it's someone's and I'm not making this up. But the fact is, is like, I'm comfortable talking about really, really, really complicated stuff in my life because that's what happened. And it, it, it doesn't really matter to me if you disagree with it, because I might disagree with it too, but it is part of my life, you know? Right. And I do think that that is something that I, um, you know, am pretty like adamantly against, which is like, I'm not interested in making content that, or making art that like everyone can agree with. Uh, that to me is like a sign of laziness, to be honest, or or a sign that you're not really saying anything. If I'm going to be perfectly real, like, I think it is good to like, <laughs> bring stuff, put stuff into the world that like creates a conversation, you know? Again, check out Katie's work at at sex underscore is underscore weird. Keep an eye out for her upcoming book and follow and become a patron of Theo Henderson and the We The Unhoused podcast. So while these three women, Kim, Anna, and Katie, all make pretty different work, they're all connected to who and what matters to them. This is firmly rooted in the tradition of the zine scene of the 90s, of women's comics of the 70s, and of the Kathy comics. The final artist I spoke with, while still very young, has worked through all of the mediums we discussed today. She began working online, then moved into comics in print magazines, and is now about to start making graphic novels for Random House. 
artist number 12, whose work you may not know now, but I guarantee you will very soon, Liz Montague. Montague is a relatively new voice in comics, first coming to prominence in 2019 when she began cartooning for The New Yorker, the first black woman to do so 94 years into the magazine's run. What the fuck? Liz had already been making her comic strip called Liz at Large for her local newspaper and posting online for some time before that and quickly gained a huge audience of fans for her work that examined and satirized girlhood, specifically black girlhood. So I wanted to know more about her journey to becoming a cartoonist. Here's some of our talk. Um, it's just like, it's so random. Um... <laughs> So I went, I was living in this small town in South Jersey. I got an athletic scholarship to a liberal arts school Mm -hmm. um, in Richmond, Virginia, where I went and I majored in studio art. And then I graduated and I was a graphic designer in DC and I worked in international development, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really interesting job. I got to travel a bunch, which was cool. And I was literally just like at my desk one day and I emailed the New Yorker about their diversity. They emailed me back and like, I didn't. I only knew the New Yorker though from their Instagram feed. I hadn't like, maybe I'd seen it in a dentist office or something, but like I was not familiar with the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I was not familiar with like the cartoons or anything like that. So I only knew what I had seen on Instagram from the cartoon feed and then just kind of was like, oh, I guess I could try this. Mm -hmm. Here we are a few years later. Liz originally reached out to Emma Allen, the current cartoons editor for The New Yorker, the first woman and person under 30 to lead this department. And as in her work, Liz Montague was not afraid to ask the hard questions in the funniest way possible. It's not that I'm bad at judging risk. I just feel like I'm someone who's like always willing to just take the risk. I mean, in my view, if I do it and my life will stay the same, like, if, it, if they don't respond to me, then it's not really a risk. You know what I mean? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. That's so nice. I was just like, eh, why not? But I just saw the email button on the on Instagram and was like, well, maybe they just genuinely don't know that like all of their drawings are white. Maybe they just don't know. Once her status as a New Yorker cartoonist was secured, Montague's audience grew in the adult sphere, and she used her strips in the magazine to explore a number of themes, strips on current events and ones with autobiographical elements, in a magazine that has generally circulated to a largely white and upwardly financially mobile New Yorker scene. Liz continues to make cartoons for The New Yorker, but she's already got her eyes on what's next something that brings us all the way back to our first artist, Marissa Moss. Because Liz Montague is now working on a series of graphic novels for children and young adults, and aiming for black girls to be more centered and seen in a still majority white genre. She's like gonna be at the Scholastic Book Fair. It's very exciting. So I wanted to talk to her a little bit about where her career is going next. Well, I'm working on mainly children's books right now. And I, I love Kid Lit. I love it. I think it's awesome. It's so fun. We just let ourselves be so much like create these very like gentle and kind worlds for kids that we just don't let ourselves create for adults. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. But um, I feel like what got me into reading as a kid was like the Junie B. Jones and the Ramona and like the Babysitter's Club. But like when you look now looking back at it as an adult I'm like wow like all of those books were like entirely white like they Mm -hmm. had female protagonists which was really cool but it's like those are like entirely white books Mm -hmm. and I think that right now I want to like work on that age group that genre and like diversifying the space a lot more 
I've linked to Liz's work in the description and her books with Random House start releasing next year. I cannot wait. And that, dear listener, was 12 artists, many from different backgrounds, some from different generations, all finding their niche in the medium of comics, online and off, to share their stories. And while there is certainly a lot of work to be done in this space to continue to fund and uplift marginalized voices, speaking with these 12 artists made me feel hopeful. The next generation of comic artists will undoubtedly continue to push this envelope, And if these artists are any indication, we are in extremely good hands. But listening to the 12 artists speak about their approach to cartooning, it struck me how similar it sounded to what Kathy Geiswhite was doing back in the day. The difference was, confessional cartoons were not as accepted back then. Here's a slice of our interview from this spring. Yay. It wasn't a, she wasn't a horrible wimp all the time. She wasn't. You know, uh, she wasn't. Um, the, uh, Jamie, I like never did anything intentionally. I never, I never thought, oh, now it's time for Kathy to be more tough and let me do those strips or this is now it's time for Kathy to be more this and let's do those strips. Mm -hmm. I was really kind of just, you know, (laughs) writing it out as life happened, not changing, changing dates and, or changing names and, you know, people, of course, but, um, I was just kind of writing it out as we went along. Cool. And I, I think in some ways, uh, you know, I evolved. I got stronger. I got more discriminating. I got more um, confident. Mm-hmm. And I guess that, you know, that <laughs> came out in the strip. I want to end this episode by sharing these artists' connection to the Kathy comics and their experience with them. And like they are, their takes are all very different. I hope you enjoyed learning about them, and I really encourage you to get engaged with their work. It was such a pleasure putting this episode together. And we'll be back next week with our final episode of ACCast, a chat with Kathy Geiswhite and a look at how, with 45 years of perspective, we remember the comic strip's legacy. Talk to you then! I mean, ACK is definitely the first thing. <laughs> yeah. um, it's funny. I watched this documentary about comic artists. Um, she talked about how she just started making those comics from her personal experiences and kind of like the day-to-day issues that she was experiencing. And um, I remember really relating to that when I saw that movie. Like she wasn't necessarily an artist beforehand. Like she just started making those and I think that's really really cool my first thought is the the swimsuit <laughs> ones <laughs> and the stress of that when I was reading it back when I was a kid I didn't get it at all I didn't understand it at all mm-hmm. um but it's I still read it and it still intrigued me and I think there were a lot of different things going on there I think I was young so I didn't really understand the problems of being an adult mm-hmm. but I was also a closeted trans girl and knew that there was some forbidden knowledge in that comic um, that I, you know, I wasn't supposed to be reading, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't for me, Um, but I read it anyways. And I feel like in a weird sort of way, I feel like it was a piece of the puzzle of me sort of finding uh, my identity years later. I always think of her diet comments. (laughs) She's always on a diet and I always felt bad for Kathy because I felt like she needed some self-love or something. 
I feel the same way. Just eat, eat whatever you want. <laughs> it's like, you're gonna be okay. Actually reading, reading it as a young girl, um, I, I think I, I didn't actually like the Kathy comics for that reason, because I found that, that, um, that I couldn't relate to her at the moment. I think about being frazzled mm. by like life. Like I think Kathy, you know, like I just think a lot, like obviously everyone goes act. But I do think, yeah, I think a lot about like, like the reaction to conflict is frazzled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that's sort of where I go with Kathy and, and like what I think when I see her. And then I also think a lot of like, I think visually a lot about like negative space and like primary colors. She just knew, she knew her lane, mm -hmm. she stayed in it. Slow and steady won that race. Like it, 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 it never felt like Kathy tried to keep up with the Joneses. I've read some interviews with Kathy of Kathy. Yeah. Um, and I think she thinks that she herself, like, you know, failed at a lot of stuff and she wasn't very confident in her comics at the beginning and all that. Mm -hmm. She also was, I think, untrained. Yeah. Um, but I feel like even if you feel that way, there has to be something in you that's kind of like, I'm going to document my life. You know what I mean? Like, there's something in you that has to think it's, like, special and worth doing. Just being, you know, being self-obsessed and, like, <laughs> right? And look, this is what happened to me, you guys. And, like, I am cool or I am sad or I am this or I am that, but you should pay attention, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. I am I feel guilty saying this, but I think I never connected with her. Maybe at the time... I was a little young, but also I think I probably was a victim of like how she was being characterized, that comic. Mm -hmm. And it is like, even when I would read, um, you know, Saturday morning or whatever, the Sunday morning cartoons in the newspaper, yeah. it always felt far away. And then now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, she was expressing like literally what I'm expressing in my comics now, where I'm like, I'm so anxious. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts oh hi i'm rachel zoe and my podcast climbing in heels is back and better than ever you might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.